0: Psalm 139, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 18. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before And the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. And when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you
1: last week we focused in on the Sixth Commandment, which taught us the preciousness of human life, that we were to protect and preserve our own lives and the lives of others. And we saw that that commandment is grounded in the fact that all humanity bears the image of God. And because we bear God's image, uh, our life is precious. And we, we saw a range of applications last week as we worked through the Sixth Commandment, but As we talked particularly about protecting the life of the vulnerable, I said that this week we were going to return and think specifically about protecting the life of the unborn. And so uh, this week we're going to think about why human life is precious in the womb. Now you might ask the question, why devote a whole sermon to this subject? I think there are three reasons why it's important that we do that and the first is that the loss of life through abortion just in our own land is huge around a quarter of pregnancies in the UK end in abortion and the latest statistics I could find in 2020 record that there were 210,860 abortions And since abortion was legalised in the UK in 1969, there have been around 9.5 million babies whose lives have been taken in the womb. If you look at the figure in the States, uh, from the legalisation in 1973, that is 43 million lives. It's a huge number. Put that in perspective. If you think about the... Way the Nazi regime treated Jews during the Second World War, it's estimated that just less than about six million Jews died. It is a huge loss of life. But it's also important we, we pick up this subject because the prevailing view in our culture and in our world is that abortion is an acceptable form of family planning, particularly when other forms of contraception fail. But then thirdly and finally it's important we pick this up because the attitude of Christians in general towards life in the womb is at the lowest point in history. That's not my assessment. It's the assessment of a medical doctor and bioethicist, Megan Best, who surveyed through the centuries and through history the way in which Christians have viewed this subject and her careful assessment having done that work is that we genuinely have a very significant problem in terms of how we see life in the womb. It's demonstrated by a statistic in the States that said that 13% of women who had an abortion in America identify as an evangelical Christian. Something has gone wrong in how we as Christians are approaching this subject. Now, before we go any further... I want to say a few things very specifically if you're here and you've had an abortion. I don't pretend to understand what that must have been like or how hard it will have been and still is. I imagine you may experience and feel today grief and hurt and shame and guilt. And maybe you would wish we didn't address that subject this morning. Perhaps as you sit right now, you wish you could leave or tune out. Well, my plea to you is that you don't do that. Because in reading scripture this week and in reading the stories of women who have had an abortion, I'm convinced that the best way to help you and to help us all this morning is not to avoid this issue. It's not to pass over it, to say that what you did was okay, because that will never bring you the hope and peace that you long for and that I want you to have. God's word offers a better solution in the midst of all the emotions that you feel about what happened. That is to recognize what is wrong And to point you to the full and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus, all our sin, whatever it may be, can be taken away. And the promise of the word of God is this. That in Jesus Christ, there is freedom from all guilt. Because there is forgiveness from sin if we will turn to him. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says these words in verse 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful promise. That means no shame. That means no guilt. That means no condemnation from God and no condemnation from anyone else. If you are in Christ Jesus. So my plea to you is to keep listening. We're so delighted you're here. And although it may be very hard, I trust as we work through these things, you'll be helped as we look further at that forgiveness in Christ. If you'd like to speak to someone afterwards, please do ask. And I've brought along some resources. I'll put them on the table at the back. You can come and ask me some as well if you'd like on the way out. But there are two things I want to focus our attention on today as we think about this subject of the preciousness of life in the womb. The first question I want us to think about is why we should value and protect life in the womb. And then the second question we're going to think about is how do we do that? How do we value life in the womb? Those are the two things we're going to spend our time on. So the first question, why is it that we should see life, unborn life in the womb as precious? And we're going to see first of all that life in the womb is human life. It is human life. That is a central question that we need to focus our attention on because if a child in the womb is a human life, then the sixth commandment applies, does it not? If this is a human person, then we are not to take away their life and we are to protect their life. And that is the central issue that people debate on this question of of abortion because... The great question is, who gets to decide if they are a person whose life we should protect? In our own country, abortion is, illegal, is legal sorry, up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. And that's because, as our lawmakers have thought about it, they say that's the age at which a child could survive if born early. And therefore, our law is that life cannot be taken after that point. Although, if there may be an abnormality in the life of the child, it could be taken right up to birth. It's a judgment that we've come to, um, our lawmakers have come to. And And if you read through what people say about this question, people start to argue about definitions of personhood and whether a life should be protected and at what stage it should be protected. And there's all kinds of debate out there, but what I want to say this morning is we need to come to the God who made life. We need to come to the God who made all of humanity in his image and ask the question, what does God say about this? That's where we must begin. We need to turn to the scriptures and say, what does God say about human life in the womb? And we're going to look at four passages that show us that life in the womb is human life. The first is the one that Oliver read to us. And if you have a Bible, please turn with me. I'm not going to ask you to turn to lots of passages, but I do want you to see this in the text. So please turn to Psalm 139, as we see that a baby in the womb is a person. A baby in the womb is a person. This is a wonderful Psalm, Psalm 139, about God's knowledge of David. And as David grows through the Psalm, David's knowledge of God. And where does that personal knowledge of God, of David, by God, begin? Well, it begins, David says, as he was knitted together in his mother's womb. David describes this masterpiece, this amazing work of God's creation in the womb. And he says that he himself, David, it is David who was put together in his mother's womb. And the thing that should strike us, if we look at verses 13 to 16 is the personal language that David uses for his growing body in the womb. He is, from the very earliest stage, a human person. Look what he says, verse 13. Who is God knitting together in the womb? You knit me together. A personal word there, personal pronoun. Verse 15. was being woven together? David said, it was I who was being woven together. You are forming me. I was made. It's all personal language. So as David grows in his mother's womb before his birth, he is a person. He is not less than a human person. He doesn't become a human person at a later date. He is, in his very beginning, a human person. And it could be that in verse 16, David is thinking, and the Lord inspiring David, to think of very early in pregnancy. Because if you look there at the start of verse 16, he says... Your eyes saw my unformed body, perhaps not fully recognizable with a human form, yet he still says, my body, he is a person. And isn't it astonishing that, I don't know how many thousand years before ultrasound is invented having an insight into what is going on in this work of creation. God is telling us that David is a human person in the womb. That's the first passage. The second passage we need to turn to is in the book of Exodus. So jump back with me to Exodus chapter 21. And this is a significant passage because we see in Exodus 21... That life in the womb is valued as human life. So so how does God put a value on human life in the womb? And we see that in Exodus 21 because, well, well, this is early personal injury law. This is early personal injury law in terms of the value of life. And, And the principles we see as we look at verses 22 to 25 is that life within the womb has the value of life outside of the womb. Look with me in Exodus 21 at verse 22. We read, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but, if, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So the situation there is that two people are fighting and in the midst of that fight, a pregnant woman is harmed by one of those two. If she gives birth early and there is no serious injury to the child, then the offender is fined, but it stops there. But if there is injury to the child, verse 23, if there is serious injury to the child that is born, what is the principle that's applied? Well, the principle is an eye for an eye, a life for a life. So the way in which that unborn child is valued is exactly as if it were a life outside of the womb. God is saying the life of the child has the same value of the life of the attacker. Life within the womb has a value of life outside of the womb. That's the second thing to see. Now, I want you to jump on to the New Testament and we're going to look at one passage in Luke chapter 1. So jump on your Bibles to to Luke chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 31. And there are two uh, accounts of ladies who are early in pregnancy and we learn some wonderful things about the value of human life. So the first is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 where, where Mary is told that she is going to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 31, the angel comes to Mary and says to her, sorry, starting in verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and then Luke chapter 1 verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now notice the language very carefully there, that as Mary's told that she is going to conceive and give birth, he is a Son, the word we use for a human being who is male. In conception and in birth, Jesus Christ is a son. Christ in his person is a human being from his conception. So the work, this is an astonishing thing, but the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary brings about this miracle such that the eternal Son of God draws near. He takes upon a full human nature and so his life begins in the womb of Mary at the point of his conception. Now some want to say that life in the womb becomes human life at a later point other than conception. But that does not work with this passage as we think about the Lord Jesus. It says that he is a son of at his conception. And when people want to drive that kind of wedge, even as Christians, we need to think about what that means for the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When does he become a full human being, if not at his very conception? Now we need to pause here and ask the question, what do we mean by conception? And what we mean by conception, as I'm putting it forward today, is we mean the fertilization of, Of an egg by a sperm. At that point, scientifically, you have a unique, genetically unique person. 23 chromosomes come from mum, 23 chromosomes come from dad, and that life has 46 chromosomes in total, and it's unique. There at fertilization. And it's just astonishing, it's just one cell. But in that one cell, you have all the genetic material needed for a human being in full maturity. David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Is it not true? (laughs) Is it not true, friends? And if that one cell is allowed to develop, is nourished, it will grow to a mature person. Now some want to choose another milestone at development, perhaps implantation in the womb which will happen a week or so afterwards or, or maybe when, when that baby becomes a fully formed human in terms of having all its organs and that's sometimes that we'd say at three months. But why do we do that? That's not the earliest point at which we see human life. It is at fertilization. And seeing that, friends, should make us very careful not to describe a child in the womb as a clump of cells or as a product of conception or anything other than a human being. Isn't that why we feel the pain of miscarriage even if so very early in pregnancy because we know that this was a human being whose life has been lost. And well-meaning people might say it's just a collection of cells, but it's not. It's a human life, and we rightly feel the loss of life, and we grieve that. As we think about this question of where does life begin, it has a bearing upon the approaches we take as Christians to contraception. It is ethical to use contraception if it prevents fertilization. But we need to be very careful, because it's not always highlighted, perhaps in the wider literature, that, that some forms of contraception, particularly hormonal methods, can have the effect of stopping implantation once fertilization has occurred. And I'm told we need to also be aware that that some treatments offered for other conditions in women later in life can also have the effect of stopping implantation. When we go through a couple and help them in marriage preparation, before the wedding, one of the resources we, we give to them is a resource in thinking about different approaches, biblically to contraception. If you'd like to have access to that, please speak to me or James and we'd be happy to give that resource to you. Jesus is fully human at his conception, at fertilization. That's our third thing that we have seen. But then fourthly, and this is a fourth passage, and it's, you don't need to go anywhere. It's there in Luke chapter 1, because as you know, there are, there's the, the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus. But then also, as, as Mary hears the news, if you look in Luke chapter 1, we see that she goes to her, her uh, cousin Elizabeth and she goes to speak to her. So in Luke chapter 1, in verses 39 to 40, we have an encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, who are both at that point carrying their children. Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ, Elizabeth, John the Baptist. And let's look here at verses 39 to 44 of Luke chapter 1, because we read, at that time Mary got ready, she's heard the news, and she hurries to the town in the hill country of Judea, for joy. So it's an amazing passage here because you have four lives meeting, don't you? In these two ladies in their pregnancies. And when hearing the greeting from Mary to Elizabeth, John leaps in the womb. That's a description of what a person does. He leaps in the womb, but he's there in, in Elizabeth's tummy in that sense, but he responds to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it lovely to think, you know, John the Baptist, what does he do? He points to Christ right through his life, doesn't he? He says, behold the Lamb of God. And what is he doing here before he's born? What is he doing? He's saying, behold the Lord Jesus Christ as he leaps at his arrival in that sense. And it's very significant to notice that in the Greek where we have the word. Um, if you look at verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. The word used for the baby there, John, is breathos, which is exactly the same word that is used for Jesus when he has been born and is a young child. So God, in the language he is using, is saying this is a child. This is a human being. Even more striking is there in the uh, end of verse 43 as we see, Elizabeth refers to Mary now as the mother of my Lord. Now think about the timelines here. Mary is very early in her pregnancy, perhaps just a week or so. But for Elizabeth, Mary is the mother to the Lord Jesus Christ at this very moment. She is carrying the Lord in her body because he is at that point And indeed, in his fertilization in in Mary's womb, he has become a human being. So, all of those four passages are showing to us that life in the womb is a human life. It is protected by the Sixth Commandment. But because some want to permit abortion, people adopt other definitions of what it means to be a human life. Some want to speak about the ability to support life independently. That's perhaps the basis of the law in our country for 24 weeks. But that doesn't work because if you think about it, what are we saying, therefore, about those who need artificial intervention to sustain their lives? Someone needs dialysis regularly. Are they a human being if they need help to live in that sense? Someone to say that we should use the, the criteria of size to see whether a life is worthy of protection but then we rightly support the life of tiny premature babies and yet take the lives of those in the womb who are larger. Others might speak of the ability to reason, but there is no distinction on that basis between before and after birth. Friends, deep down, we know that a baby is a person, right from fertilization. I was I was struck this week uh, by a video uh, that was put out of interviews with people asking for their response to the sentencing of Lucy Letby. And between June 2015 and June 2016, Lucy Letby killed seven babies and harmed at least 11 more. Now, those babies, whom life she took, were small, they didn't have the ability to reason, and they couldn't support their own lives. That was why they were in hospital. And everyone who was interviewed said it was wrong to take those babies' lives. And we'd agree, wouldn't we, friends? But then they were asked, apply that same logic to the question of abortion. In even the same hospital. Some said, yeah, that's not right. Some said, no, that's okay. The question we have to ask is, what's the difference? The difference is how their parents and society see those young lives. Because the sad reality, and this is striking as we think of it, friends, the sad reality is that life, the value of the life of the unborn in the womb is taken away On the basis of whether those babies are wanted or not. Because the attitude of the mother to the child changes, the legal status of the life of the child changes. And once that happens, our law would say they are no longer human. Friends, we're not valuing human life equally and fairly. If we did that with people of different ethnicities it is racism and partiality. If we did that with people of different sexes it is prejudice and it's wrong. But when we do that with the lives of children it's legal. It's a serious thing as you think you see it that way. Really grasp me this week to see that this is what we're doing. We're, We're taking the place of God. We're defining life. And this is not for us to do. Now, there are hard cases when a mother and a baby would die in pregnancy if it were to continue, such as an ectopic pregnancy. And in those situations, doctors act to save the life of one, the mother, because if they do nothing, then both will die. But that's different, friends. In the UK, 98.5% of abortions happen with a healthy mother and a healthy baby. Life is precious. And we should value and protect the life of the unborn because God says that life in the womb is human life. Now, having worked through that, I want to turn to four applications of how we should respond to this as God's people, and we're going to need to move quickly through these. And the first application I want us to see is that we cannot be silent about this reality. So in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, and in verse 11, Paul says these words, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing to do means avoid those deeds of darkness. And expose them means bring them to light, the light of God's word, so that we might see them rightly. Now this is challenging, friends, because on abortion, I think we have to say that some Christians have not been as clear as they should have been. When the Abortion Act was introduced in 1969, some church leaders were silent. And there is a danger, as we think about this subject, that we would adopt what John Piper calls a passive avoidance ethic. Which means that we avoid it because we know it isn't right, but we don't say anything about it. And friends, as we have opportunity, we must speak. God's word calls us. To stand and protect and preserve the life of the vulnerable. For those who cannot preserve and protect their own lives. And so we must speak. And persecution might follow, but that should not stop us. We should be speaking positively of the goodness of marriage. And of saying how the, that God's word is so clear that the only setting for sexual intimacy is in the lifelong covenant of marriage between a man and a woman because many abortions are sought because we've forgotten God's good design. Practically, friends, let us lament and pray. How often have we prayed about this in a prayer meeting? How often have we prayed about this in our own prayer times? Maybe you have a group of friends and you're speaking together about the issue. Will you have courage to share the Bible's teaching? Maybe there's a debate in class about this question. Will you stand for what's right? I read an amazing story this week of a a teenage girl in in a college in the States, and she was writing a paper on the question of abortion. And she said, I think, I believe it's wrong for these reasons. And she was failed. Her teacher said, all you have to do to pass and actually get the highest mark is say, some people think, and you can have... An A star, grade nine, whatever the American equivalent is. She wouldn't do it. Not just some people. She stood in her convictions. What courage! Maybe a friend might share with you about a pregnancy and share that they're considering an abortion. Would you gently explain that their baby is a life, is a human being? You could talk with them about other options. You could offer to take them to a crisis pregnancy support centre that supports mothers. There are options. We can share those with others that don't include an abortion. And as we think about the law in our land, some might say, well, a better strategy for changing the law is to work purely in evangelism because people won't accept what we're saying unless they're Christians. But that approach misses the point, friends. We are not called to win. That is the Lord's battle. We are called to witness and declare what is true. And God can move in ways that we may not imagine. Wasn't it so encouraging to see the overturning of the Roe v. Wade law in America last year? People didn't see that coming very clearly, but it came. God can move in ways that we may not imagine. So pray, have courage to speak, and draw along with loving, gentle clarity to speak with friends when they're going through these kinds of situations. So let us not be silent. But then secondly, let us speak highly of parenting and being a parent. Psalm 127 verses uh, three to five, reminds us that children are a blessing from the Lord. We read, "'Children are a heritage from the Lord, "'offspring a reward from him, "'like arrows in the hand of a warrior "'are a children born in one's youth. "'Blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. "'They'll be not put to shame "'when they contend in their opponent's court.'" What is God saying there? God is saying children are a blessing. And we may not have planned to conceive, but we have. And as we think of that, we must remember it is a privilege to be a parent, not an inconvenience. It it brings new responsibilities, both for mother and father, but we should encourage one another to embrace those. And fathers in particular need to be challenged to step up to those responsibilities they now have. However, this life may have been conceived this baby has value and humanity that is not affected by the circumstances of their conception. And as we think of the responsibilities of parenting, if we're not able to accept them, there are other options. Adoption is a possibility. We have families in our church who have shown amazing love and sacrifice in adopting and providing loving and caring homes for children. Let us speak highly of parenting. But then thirdly, let us commend and support right choices. Thinking further about this question of parenting, the way our culture treats children is as if they're consumer items, that that we are to have them on demand and as required. And that is a very selfish view of what it means to be a parent. And the sad thing is, that means that when we have an unexpected pregnancy, some might tell us that becoming a parent will ruin your life. That's a language that's sometimes used. Now, there are costs to being a parent. Parenting will interfere and change your plans. It might affect what would happen in the future with education, and it will bring differences and changes in the future that you cannot imagine. And for every parent, there will be pain and hardship that comes with the responsibilities of parenting. But that is not a reason to have an abortion and to end a life. In fact, we need to remember that doing what is right before God will never ruin your life in terms of what matters ultimately. That's a lie, isn't it, friends? And we need to see it as such. God is glorified as we do what is right, even when doing what is right can be very hard. Parenting is a joy, but it will also come with some suffering for every parent. And we must remember that God can overrule even in the midst of that suffering. Genesis 50 verse 20 reminds us in that story as Joseph looks over all that he goes through and the hardship in his life, what does he say? You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. What's the principle? God can take what is hard and horrible and difficult and use it for great good. And we must Believe and practice, friends, that among God's people there should be no shame. There should be no condemnation for those who have repented and returned to the Lord after conceiving a child outside of the marriage covenants. We must declare that. But we must go a step further. And practically, we need to help those who want to make right choices, to seek to minimize the hardship they may face. So if they're in need, could we help them in a way that might cost us? Could we offer financial support to someone who is pregnant in that unexpected way and will have financial need? There are stories of families in churches who will open their home to an expectant mother and give her somewhere to live in all the uncertainty that's there. Could we do that within our own church family if that were needed? We should be drawing near to support through hard times that may come. And friends, as we look at those who have made good and right choices, their example is a big challenge to us in every area of life because that principle that to do the right thing even when it's hard applies in all of life, doesn't it? Because remember, whatever our situation may be, we must never believe that making the right choice will ruin our lives. We must do what is right and trust God, seek to glorify God, trusting him in faith and committing our future to his care. So their example, their example challenges us, doesn't it? Because they have taken that courageous step to do what is right. Let us follow that example in every area of life. But then fourthly and finally, we've seen that we need to speak. We cannot be silent. We've seen that we need to speak highly of parenting. We've seen we need to commend and support those who make right choices. And then fourthly and finally, we need to be all about the gospel. We are Christian people. This is a Christian church, and we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of God's salvation in Christ, is the only thing that can give strength to those who are seeking to save life and support those and give hope to those who have taken it. For those who are trying to save life by supporting those in need, that the ability to love and support and to care for those who we seek to help can only come as we see Christ's love to us in the gospel. If you try and find the strength in anything else, our own sources of strength will dry out. However big our hearts, however strong our love, it has a limit. And helping others in need might push us beyond that limit. But as we think about the challenge, not just to commend but to support those in this need, what do we need to do? We need to look to God's love in Christ, as James encouraged us last Sunday evening. Because as we see God's love in Christ... And the cost it, he showed, the cost of that love, that continues to help us to keep on showing love to others in need. But then, friends, as we close, we also want to say and know that God's work of salvation in Christ, the gospel, is the great hope for those who have taken life. Perhaps when we come to see what we've done ourselves or encouraged others to do we might feel huge guilt i was struck this week by a statistic that said that a third of women in the uk have had an abortion and you think what burden they must carry what a burden And this is why the gospel is such great news, because there is one way to be free from the guilt. There is one way to be free from that burden. And it's Jesus Christ, friends. It's Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because the longer we seek to hide our sin from God, the heavier the burden will feel. But confession and faith leads to real forgiveness and peace. Jesus Christ offers any who will believe something that no one else can. He doesn't just offer to excuse our sin. Once confessed, he offers to exchange it. Because for those who believe, what does he do? He bears their sin on the cross. That's the first part of the great exchange. And then by faith, he gives to them his perfect life that makes us whiter than snow. And that means there is no guilt in life. That means there is no fear in death. That means, Romans 8 verse 1, there is now and for all eternity no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, every one of us here this morning, that's our greatest need. And to any who will look to Christ by faith, that's the greatest offer in all the world. So will you come to him? Will you know that no condemnation, no guilt in life, no fear in death, This is the power of Christ in me.